in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. It's great to be back up in the pulpit. It's been about six months uh, since I was last here. Uh, For those of you who don't know, my name is Josiah Allen. Uh, I've been attending the church pretty much from the beginning. And uh, my, my day job when I'm not up here is I'm actually a full-time student. Uh, I go to pharmacy school at the University of Minnesota. And I'm actually in my, my second year of the program. And this last two semesters uh, are the two hardest semesters of our program. So when I preached last summer, my wife Katie told uh, Jordan that he was not allowed to ask me to preach again until winter break, which, which ended on December 18th. I took my last final at 9 a.m. And I checked my phone after the final at 9.45. I had a text from Jordan saying, is, you know, are you ready? Can you preach again on, on the 5th? And I said, well, all right, you got me. It's, technically, we're done. So yes, so here we are. Uh, so we're going to jump back in the series that we started prior to uh, at the Christmas, the Advent season, uh, which was in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 17 is where we're going to be today. And we're walking through the story of Abraham, Abraham's life. Um, so before we kind of get into the passage for today, we'll just recap, because it's been a few months now. Uh, so we'll recap kind of where we've been in the story so far. So the story starts in Genesis chapter 12, when Abram, as he's called then, uh, gets a call from God to head out of the land uh, that he's from and just kind of head on the road. And God says, I'll, I'll basically, I'll tell you where to stop, uh, but follow me and I'm going to make a great nation of you uh, and, and make a great nation of you and, and the descendants after you. Um, but there's a problem, and the problem is, is that his wife uh, is unable to bear children. So there's this, this running problem throughout the whole story of Abraham of how is God going to deliver on his promise to make a great nation of Abraham if, if his wife is unable to bear bear children. Uh, and we see throughout the story that the, the author is doing a really nice job of sort of teasing up some, some potential answers and then kind of pulling them back. Uh, so the first thing that we get in Genesis uh, chapter 13 and 14 is, is the story of Lot. And Lot is Abram's nephew. And he's maybe bringing up, he's brought up in the story as, oh, hey, is he maybe the answer to this problem? Is, is God going to fulfill his promise through, through Lot? And the answer is no, it's not going to be Lot. And then in chapter 15, uh, we get this story where, again, God comes to, to Abram and says, again, kind of reconfirms with him that, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to make a great nation of you. Uh, kings will come from you. And, uh, and at this point, he says, and it's actually, it's going to be your son. So he gives just a little bit more information. You know, this is going to happen, and it's going to be your son, Abram. Um, and God says, how can this be? My wife, is, my wife isn't able to, to bear children, so how can this be? Um, God says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. And the story moves on, and, then, and that's when we get in chapter 16 then, the story of Abram and Sarai and Hagar. So Hagar is Sarai's, uh, Sarai's servant, uh, an Egyptian servant, and, and so Sarai kind of hatches this plan that uh, they'll, they'll do sort of a surrogate pregnancy through, through Hagar, um, and so Hagar eventually bears Abram's child, uh, who's named Ishmael, and he's born at the end of chapter 16. And so that's where we're going to kind of pick up the story today, is at the end of chapter 16, jumping into chapter 17. Um, and what's, what's great about chapter 17 is that this is where we finally get the big reveal 
This is the big reveal of how God is actually going to accomplish what he says that he's going to accomplish. And uh, since this story is like 3,000 years old at this point, I'm going to spoil it for you. Um, and the, 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 the spoiler is that Sarai is going to get pregnant. Um, so that's the, the big reveal is that this woman who is, uh, who is unable to bear children and, and who's now postmenopausal, so sort of a double whammy, uh, is going to uh, be able to, to bear a child to, to Abram, who will now finally be able to start getting to call Abraham because he gets his name changed. Uh, so there's, there's two other major themes that we're going to tackle in this passage today. Uh, and, and they're really, really big themes, and I'm not going to be able to do them justice today. Uh, but we'll try to, to hit as much of it as we can. The first one is going to be covenant, uh, the theme of covenant, which is a huge theme throughout the whole book of Genesis and really throughout all of Scripture. Uh, and so we're, we're going to kind of get a, a, a tease of what a covenant is and, and what that means in terms of the big story of Scripture. The other one is circumcision. And when Jordan told me that I was going to be preaching on circumcision, I, I sort of questioned his discernment uh, because uh, in my heart, I'm still a 13-year-old boy. But uh, I, so I promise, I can't promise that there's not going to be any circumcision jokes in the sermon, but I, I promise that they will be tasteful. So, uh, so let's jump into the passage. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a longer passage. We'll kind of take it in chunks and, and, and go through it. So we'll start uh, in chapter 17 with the first two verses. So chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the sovereign God. Walk before me and be blameless. Then I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and I will give you a multitude of descendants. All right, so quick words here before we jump into the rest of the story. First, note that uh, it says that Abraham was 99 years old when chapter 17 starts. If you go back one verse to the end of chapter 16, you see that he was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. So in the space of this one verse, we've, we've fast-forwarded 13 years of Abram's life, all right? So, so Ishmael uh, was born when he was 86. He's 99 now, so Ishmael's 13, right? So, so Abram has gone 13 years. He's, he got this promise in chapter 15 that God was going to give him a son and that that's the son through whom God was going to enact his promise, right? And now he's gone 13 years having a son, Ishmael, not his wife's son, but his son, Ishmael. So we can imagine then that he's probably assumed for 13 years that Ishmael is, is the answer. This is the son that God has, has given him. It's his son, which was what God promised. And so we can probably imagine that, that coming into chapter 17 and God showing up again is probably a little bit out of the blue for him. Um, he's probably assumed for 13 years that the story's done, that, that this is the God, this is the, the son that God has promised to him, this is the son that God is going to enact his promises through, and now God shows up sort of out of the blue again and, and gets, and the, the story's about to change, right? Uh, the other thing that I want to talk about here is there's, there's a lot of talk uh, in this chapter, a lot of people who are getting their names changed. So we got a Abram is going to become Abraham, Sarai is going to become Sarah. Uh, so a lot of people, when they preach in this passage, will talk about these name changes that are, that are going to occur. I'm going to skip all that, and we're actually going to talk about uh, the name that God uses here. Uh, so in your, in, in your version, depending on what version you're reading from, uh, sometimes the versions will, will translate it. He, God says, I am the sovereign God. I am God Almighty. I'm Almighty God. Something like that uh, is, is what's commonly used there. The, the most common is, is Almighty God or God Almighty. And uh, that's, that's actually probably a little bit of a mistranslation. So the Hebrew words here are El Shaddai. So El is God, and, and Shaddai is the one that we, we sometimes have a trouble translating. And when the Bible was originally translated from Hebrew into Latin uh, by St. Jerome, they weren't, he wasn't really sure what to do with that word. And so he put omnipotent God. 
Uh, he translated it omnipotent God. And that's where we kind of get that, that idea of God Almighty, the all-powerful, the almighty God. Uh, but as we've learned more about comparative, comparative you know, uh, language and, and more about the Hebrew language and been able to do a little bit deeper study into the word, uh, we've gotten a little bit more understanding of what Shaddai means. And so the root word there is Shad, which is a Hebrew word, and it can mean two different things. It can either mean breast or it can mean mountain. And both of those things uh, probably have a, have a connotation that's relevant here. So first, in the context of, of, of breast, there's this, con- there's this connotation of, of fertility, of life-giving. God, as God the life-bringer, the God of abundance, the one who, who brings uh, fertility and life to the world, right? And then we also have this connotation of mountain. So think of like God as, as the God who rules from the mountains, who's over all things, who controls all things. So that's similar somewhat to, to the idea of God as, as the all-powerful God, but it's less about his power and it's more about his position as the ruler of all things, who's over all things, who's ruling from the mountaintops, okay? Um, so those, both of those ideas are, are really, really important in this story, right? Because we're about to see God's going to enact a miracle. He's going to take a barren woman who's unable to have children, and, and he's going to give her a child. So this idea of God as the life bringer, God as the one who's in control, um, he's introducing that idea to Abram and introducing himself that way to Abram. And that's going to be really meaningful uh, as the story unfolds, isn't it? All right, so before we jump into the next few verses, uh, we're going to do a quick preface, and we're going to be talking about this idea of covenant. And as you'll see, it comes up 13 times in this chapter, that word covenant. So we should probably talk a little bit about what it means. And like I said, this, this honestly could be a whole series of sermons in and of itself of just what, what the covenants are in Scripture. Um, so we're just going to barely touch on it. And, and honestly, this is also uh, one of those areas where there's a little bit of controversy in the church. So this is one of those big, uh, big overarching sort of theological questions that a lot of people have. Um, there's, when you, when you kind of get into the theology, there's covenant theology versus dispensational theology, none of which I will talk about today. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Uh, but, it's, but it's sort of on par with some of the like Calvinism, Arminianism, free will, predestination type of debates. It's one of those really big questions that people wrestle over and have wrestled over for a long time. Uh, so we're, we're, we're not going to focus on that, but we are going to focus on is what are the reasons for covenants in Scripture and, and why does God use covenants uh, throughout Scripture as a way of interacting with his people? So we're going to read this next part of the cha- passage, and what I want you to listen for are, are the repetition of phrases and words. I'm going to ask you about them at the end. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to tell me what you hear. Uh, so listen closely as we read chapter, uh, chapter 17, verses 3 to 8. So Abraham bowed down with his face to the ground, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer will your name be Abram. Instead, your name will be Abraham, because I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. So Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. I will make you extremely fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will descend from you. I will confirm my covenant as a perpetual covenant between me and you. It will extend to your descendants after you throughout their generations. I will be your God and the God of the descendants after you. I will give you the whole land of Canaan, the land where you are now residing, to you and your descendants after you as a permanent possession. I will be their God. All right, so what did you hear? What were some of the phrases or or words that you guys heard a lot of? I will be your God. That was repeated a couple of times, two or three times, I think. What else? Covenant, right? That was in there three or four times. Descendants was another one that was, that was commonly put in there. 
So if you put all of those together, you start to get a certain picture of what a covenant is. And this is my my central thesis for you guys today. Covenants are the mechanism that God uses to introduce who he is through relationship with humanity. So I'll say that again. Covenants are the mechanisms that God uses to reveal who he is through relationship with humanity. And remember, this is actually kind of where we started out today. We started about talking about how God introduced himself to Abram. He said, I'm El Shaddai, I'm the God, the life bringer, the sovereign one. And we said that God was affirming Abraham, affirming to Abram who he was. And here we see that God is now establishing a relationship with Abraham and with his descendants. I will be their God. I will be your God. And that refrain of I will be their God, uh, we hear almost every time the, the, the idea of covenant comes up both now and, and forward in through the rest of scriptures. So there's there's a, a number of major covenants that, that come, out, come through out of scripture. One is here. One is uh, at Mount Sinai when Moses receives the law and the Ten Commandments. Another big one is, is uh, the covenant that God makes with David when he establishes David's sort of royal line uh, as, as the, the line that God will be working through. And every single time at each of those, there's this re- repetition of this phrase, I will be their God they will be my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. This common refrain that we hear. You see, all the way back, and we're going we're to zoom way back and look at the big picture of Scripture here, all the way back in the garden, right? We, we were in the garden with God, and we walked with God, and we had a relationship with him. He was our God. We were his people. And through sin, that relationship was cut off. That's the whole story of the first 11 chapters of of Genesis with Noah and the Tower of Babel and the wickedness on earth. We lost our understanding of who God was and who we were in relationship to him. And we lost our relationship with him. But God wasn't done with us. He was working to restore that relationship, to reveal who he was so that we could walk with him again, just like we did in the garden. So God chooses Abraham, uh, this, this essentially pagan. He, he did, as far as we know, did not have a relationship with God up until God pulled him out of his, of his culture and said, come follow me uh, on this sort of wild goose chase. I'll tell you when to stop. Uh, and and God, what, did God tell, what does God say at the beginning of this passage? Walk before me and be blameless. Why? Why does God do that? So he wants to do that so that through Abraham, we can start to get glimpses of who God is. And then later, we're going to get more revelation of who God is through Moses and through the law, and later more through David. And then ultimately, we we get the prophets who come on the scene, and they start talking about this new covenant that's coming, that's going to be somehow fulfilling the previous covenants, but it's also going to be bigger and and better than anything that had come before. And then finally, we get the big big revelation of, of God, right, that we celebrated a week ago, where God made man, Jesus Christ, comes down to earth and does what? Who walks with us. Right? As, as God made flesh. So by believing in Jesus Christ, we get to participate in this promise that we have from God here, that he will be our God and we will be his people. Paul says this in Galatians 3. He says that those who believe are blessed along with Abraham, the believer. And later he says, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So we, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we get to be descendants of Abraham and participate in these promises. There's another place where we hear that refrain of, I will be your God, they will be my people. 
And we hear it again in Revelation chapter 21, where John is before the throne of God and he hears a loud, vo- loud voice before the, or coming from the throne that says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's what we have to look forward to. What we screwed up in the garden, God fixes. And we get to walk with him again and be in relationship with him again. And all of that, all of that that we have to look forward to, we get to look forward to it. And we can trace it back to this moment in Genesis chapter 17, where El Shaddai, the life-bringing God, the sovereign God, who rules from the mountains over all things, makes this promise to Abraham. That's so cool. All right, chapter, verses 9 to 14 here. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep the covenantal requirement I am imposing on you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my requirement that you and your descendants after you must keep. Every male among you must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskins. This will be a reminder of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not one of your descendants. They must indeed be circumcised, whether born in your house or bought with money. The sign of my covenant will be visible in your flesh as a permanent reminder. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin will be cut off from his people. He has failed to carry out my requirement." Well, at Capital City, we want to take the Word of God seriously, so please join us downstairs after the sermon for uh, refreshments and, uh, and circumcision. Uh, all right, so let's talk about circumcision. What do we know historically about circumcision? We know it probably didn't originate with Abraham. Uh, so circumcision did exist in cultures around this. Uh, the Egyptians practiced circumcision. A number of Mesopotamian cultures practiced circumcision. It, pre- it probably predated the Abrahamic era. Uh, we know that it wasn't universal because uh, later on in, in you know, sort of the, the David time frame, uh, we hear a lot about the Philistines and, and they're commonly referred to as the uncircumcised Philistines. So this wasn't a universal practice by any means, but it was practiced. Uh, what was new and what was different about uh, how circumcision, how God chose to use circumcision uh, was the timing and the meaning that was associated with it. So in, in all of those other cultures, in Egypt and, and the other Mesopotamian cultures, it was always associated as a sort of coming-of-age ritual. So it was a, it was a puberty ritual uh, that occurred, and uh, that's actually still, in, in certain uh, African cultures, that's still how it's used. The Bantu tribes still, still use circumcision as sort of this coming-of-age ritual, and there's, a, there's actually an element of sort of bravery. If you flinch during the process, you're somehow less of a man if, if you go through it that way. Um, but instead of being the sign of manhood, uh, or coming of age into, into manhood, in verse 11, it's described differently, right? It's, it's being, uh, depending on your translation, a sign or token or reminder of the covenant between God and his people. And it's not something that happens at puberty, but it happens to newborns, right? At eight days after they're born. Now, when we say sign, when, it, when we talk about the sign there, we don't mean it simply in the sense of being a symbol. Sometimes we, we sort of think of it that way as, as just sort of a, a symbol, like, like um, uh, I don't know, just a symbol that, that, uh, of, of the covenant that's taking place. It's, it's more than that. Uh, a lot of commentators, when they'll talk about it, they'll talk about being a seal. And we, that doesn't really help us either because we don't really use seals anymore. We don't seal letters with, with ink anymore or with, uh, with wax uh, like they did in the old days. So I, I think maybe the, the closest parallel that I can come up with today is, is more like a signature, right? So if you're signing a contract, the signature is not the contract. 
but the contract is not complete until you have that signature on it, right? You can have the contract, you can have the signature, uh, but it's not a complete package until you have both together. And that's sort of what's, what's being symbolized here, is that being circumcised indicates that you are signing on to this covenant between God and his people. And, and not only between God and his people, but between the people and the people, right? Because this is part of a sign of the community of God. If you choose to be uncircumcised, it specifically says that you're, you're cut off from the community. You're sort of excommunicated from the community uh, if, if you choose not to participate in this. Now, a couple of things here. So, so first of all, separating the sign of the covenant from the covenant itself is an important concept because this is one of the mistakes that Israel made throughout their history. They assumed that if they were circumcised, that they were good with God as far as God was concerned, that this was, this was all they needed to do, get circumcised and you're good and, and kind of the rest of the life can go on. And God, through the law and through the prophets, had to constantly remind them of this difference between the covenant the relationship with God, and the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. One of the phrases that that you see constantly throughout Scripture, Moses uses it, and the the prophets use it a ton, which is the sign of circumcision of the heart. So you hear that phrase a ton throughout the Bible. And it was this idea to remind the Israelites that it's not just about this outward physical sign, but it's about this inward orientation, directional relationship with God. It's kind of a, it's, it's a little bit like marriage, right? So, so when I got married, I, I, I had a wedding ring that was put on my finger by my lovely wife. And I made that while I was making my covenantal vows with my wife. Now, if I'm being unfaithful to my wife, it doesn't matter if I'm wearing this ring or not. The, the ring is, is meaningless if the relationship between my, myself and my wife is not there, right? In the same way, if we're, if, if we're circumcised, but that relationship with God is not, is not there, uh, the, the circumcision is meaningless. Paul hammers this home throughout Romans and, and Galatians, throughout a lot of his writings. This was a major issue, a major theme for him when he was talking about uh, sort of the difference between this, this new relationship in Christ versus the, the old relationship through the law. The other thing that I want to point out in here that, that commonly gets overlooked is, is who circumcision applies to. So it applies to men, obviously, but is it just for Abraham and his descendants? No. It's actually for everybody in Abram's household, whether they are a, a direct descendant of Abraham or not. So it, it applies to his, any, anybody who's born in his household, whether they're servants or whether his kids, or anybody who enters his household, um, who, is, who is purchased into his household. So there's no stipulation here of any sort of racial or social status that's associated with circumcision. Okay? Whether you are slave or free, Jew or Gentile, if you were circumcised, you were part of the community of God. And this is something else that, that was continued on in Moses and the law. If you were a foreigner, uh, it says in the law, if you're a foreigner, but you choose to live under Jewish law and you choose to become circumcised, you are a full participating member in the entire community of God. You can even attend Passover, which is the highest uh, Jewish feast. You could even attend that if you were a foreigner and, and you participated in the law and you participated in circumcision. So you were a full, full-fledged member in the community of God. But this is something else that got messed up throughout the years. What was originally meant to be really a sign of grace that anybody who believed could participate in became a source of sinful pride for the Jews, that they were somehow special because that they, they were given this particular sign. But even all the way back in the Abrahamic covenant and, and also in the Mosaic law, it was for anybody who came. It was for anybody who chose to be. You didn't have to be a descendant, direct descendant of Abraham. 
Ultimately, this led to a major conflict in the, earlier, in the early church. This was one of the, the big issues that uh, Peter and Paul uh, were, were kind of fighting against in the first you know, it's five, 30, 40 years of the church. Uh, and there's this, this, this argument between uh, what they call the Judaizers, who believed that everybody in the church also had to be circumcised. If you, if you, were, uh, if you believed in Jesus Christ, you also had to be circumcised and live under Jew, Jewish law. And even Peter sort of got wrapped up into this, and it actually took a special vision from God, uh, as well as seeing the Holy Spirit come down on uncircumcised Gentiles to convince him that this, this is the wrong way, and that, that really it's, it's by faith alone through Jesus Christ that we're saved, and it has nothing to do with this old way under the law and through circumcision. Uh, Paul, in particular, spends a, a, a lot of ink on this topic. In fact, the whole book of Galatians is essentially written uh, because the church in Galatia had sort of fallen under the spell of these false prophets who were going after this particular issue and, and trying to convince the Galatian church that they all had to be circumcised in order to, uh, in order to, to really be true members of, of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul takes them to task. I mean, he gets angry uh, when, he, when he talks about this. Uh, there's, there's, some, there's actually some, some funny lines that Paul uses in Galatians uh, to, to really go after these guys that I, that I won't mention here, even though they are in Scripture. Uh, but Paul makes very clear that all of those distinctions uh, that, had, that we had thought had existed, this, that distinction between Jew and Gentile, between uh, slave and free, all of those are gone. This is what he says, right? There's no, neither male nor female, nor Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free. All are one in Jesus Christ. And we are all one, all heirs to the promise of Abraham. There's a lot more with, that we could talk about with respect to circumcision. There's, there's almost zero, there's, there's maybe a handful of books in Scripture that don't talk about circumcision. So it really is one of these major concepts that kind of flows throughout Scripture. Um, we don't have the time to, to get into all of it as much as I'd love to, uh, so we need to cut, cut this short a little bit. Uh, but let's finish up, and uh, we'll talk about verses 15 to 23 here. We'll go through the rest of this uh, pretty shortly. So... Then God said to Abraham, as for your wife, you must no longer call her Sarai. Sarah will be her name. I will bless her and will give you a son through her. I will bless her and she will become the mother of nations. Kings of countries will come from her. Then Abraham will bow down with his face to the ground and laughed as he said to himself, can a son be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Can Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, Sarah, your wife, is going to bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a perpetual covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will indeed bless him, make him fruitful, and give him a multitude of descendants. He will become the father of 12 princes. I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this set time next year. When he finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. Then, God, or then Abraham took his, his son Ishmael and every male in his household, whether born in his house or bought with money, and circumcised them on that very same day, just as God had told him to do. All right, so in this final section, we finally get the big reveal that Sarai, who's now going to become Sarah, both of those, are, they're just, they're, they both mean princess, uh, but they're just kind of a, a slight uh, twist on the word princess. Uh, and, and that princess, and then we hear them talking about kings coming from you. So there's this kind of idea of royalty that's throughout this passage. Uh, but Sarah is going to give birth to a son. And you can hear Abraham being a little incredulous at first, like, come on, God, 
that can't really happen, right? I mean, I'm 100 years old. My wife is 90 years old. I mean, we've already got Ishmael. Can't we call this good? Uh, he's already here. Can't he just live before you, and can't he be the heir to the promise? Um, remember, he's been living 13 years, probably assuming that that was the case, uh, that this was the answer. But God doubles down. God says, no, this is going to happen. And not only that, his name is going to be Isaac, which means he laughs. And that name Isaac, he laughs, is a beautiful picture of what El Shaddai can do. Here, Abraham, and later Sarah, too, when she hears the news, they laugh. But it's a sort of a bitter laugh, right? Like, come on, God, stop messing around. This, this can't really happen. There's, a, there's bitterness in that laugh. But later, when Isaac is finally born in chapter 21, Sarah says this. She said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. But this time, it's not a bitter laugh, right? It's a laughter of joy. And that's because that's what God, the life bringer, does. El Shaddai, right? El Shaddai turns barrenness into fertility. He turns sorrow into joy. He renews these promises to Abraham. He renews them to Isaac. He renews them again for us today. And because of that, we can have hope that he will be our God and we will be his people today and to the end of the age. Let's pray. El Shaddai, God who rules from the mountains, God the life bringer, we thank you for how you are faithful, for how you keep your promises, for how you order all things for our good. God, it's pretty amazing. It took 25 years from when you first made that promise to Abram in, in chapter 12 to when it was finally fulfilled uh, in, in 17 and, and later in, in, in particular in chapter 21. It took 25 years. And that's a long time to wait for something like that. Um, and, and through that time, Abraham wasn't always faithful. But even when he was faithless, you were faithful to him. And God, all of us in this room, we're all in different places. Some of us are rejoicing over promises that have been fulfilled. Some of us are in, that middle, in the middle of that waiting place. And some of us might have already given up on waiting. God, I pray that Capital City would be a, a place where people will laugh with those who are laughing, who cry with those who are crying. Give us the patience and the faith to wait on you and let us not lose sight of that ultimate hope that we have, that one day we get to walk with you again in a city without tears. We pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.